But as you sit down, look at the person next to you, tell them you're fantastic. Tell them you're incredible. Whatever positive adjective you can think of, tell them. Well, hey guys, if you're new here, my name's Corey. I'm one of the guys that gets to serve and lead at this church called Central and our network family of churches called Water's Edge. And I'm grateful to be here. Um, if you caught wind or maybe you're tuning back in or maybe you stayed for a double dip on service in our first service, um, we actually had a bit of a medical emergency. We, we had someone whose heart stopped in, in the service. And um, his name was Chuck. So if y'all want to pray for Chuck, but praise be to God, um, called EMTs. And I just want to say, like, we have an incredible team here. We had doctors and nurses and our volunteers respond immediately. They were able to do chest compressions, got his heart back going, and he was sitting up conscious in the ambulance. They were just taking him in to do checks. Um, but if you will, please keep Chuck in your prayers. We want full recovery. Uh, but I'm not going to lie, like I, I've preached now for about, you know, decade and a half. And when you preach to large enough crowds, that just happens. Sometimes people have medical emergencies, about the fourth or fifth time. And I was just so proud of our church, the way we responded, the way we prayed. And to see God move and him be okay. It was cool, um, but I'm a little shook, <laughs> I'm not going to lie. And so I'm, I'm anxious to see kind of what God does with this message. But we're in week two of our series called POV, which stands for point of view. Everybody say point of view. Yeah. And, and the point of point of view is to deploy the learning tool of really empathizing with different characters in the Bible, with, with taking the opportunity to try and put ourselves in the shoes of different characters to learn maybe new nuances from scriptural stories that we've heard before. And, and Pastor Craig kicked us off last week, uh, week one of Point of View. And if you missed that message, um, here's what I need you to do. I need you to put your hand in front of you, ball up your fist, and punch yourself in the face. Um, because it was an amazing message. Literally, I... I watched it um, and then listened to it a second time on a 15-hour flight back from South Korea. And, and Pastor Craig just dropped some profound theological truths. I've had people come up to me in the lobby before. They'd be like, Corey, man, we love you and Pastor Craig. You know, Pastor Craig is the intellectual one. And I'm always interested to see how they're going to finish that sentence. <laughs> like, so what does that make me? Like, simpleton? But no, I'm excited. And, and Pastor Craig does... He just dropped some profound truths. But I would encourage you, even if you watched it, go back and watch it again. There were some paradigm-shifting sentences he dropped, even for me in my life. But he kind of broke down what that point of view in modern day has become like a hashtag to kind of give us an excuse to say what we want to say. Just my point of view. I can say whatever I want. And that's not what we mean by this service. What we mean is kind of that old adage, you, you truly know a person when you can walk a mile in their shoes. True empathy is saying, hey, let me put myself in your position to understand where you're coming from. And so today we're going to try and do that. We're going to try and jump into the shoes of the different characters in this narrative. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter what? Nice. Good job, seven of you. I appreciate you. But in Luke chapter 18, it's a familiar story that many of us have heard before. But while you turn there, I do want to say, I want to give you an update. If you follow um, Water's Edge on Instagram or me on Instagram, you know I spent the last couple weeks with two of our church families, one in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and one in Bogor, Indonesia. I got to spend a few days with Pastor Pana at Hope and Life Church in Phnom Penh. And can I just say there's something so healthy about getting outside of your comfortable context a couple times a year and putting yourselves in the shoes of people in a different cultural context. I really believe one of the best educations you can have, if you've never left Holland, 
do it <laughs> just for a second. Go check out Zealand. No, I'm just kidding. Like, like <laughs> try and try and get outside your comfort zone. If you've never left Michigan, man, do it. If you've never left the Midwest, I'm not. Here's the deal. Holland is a beautiful place. It, the Midwest is phenomenal. You people are amazing. I'm not from here, and I just feel blessed to be here. But if you've never been outside your context, I would encourage you to do that. And if you can, if you have the means, I would encourage you to try and get outside of the United States. As one theologian I love reading and listening to coined, he said, the United States is the Disneyland of the world. We have paved roads and multiple outfits and cushy seats and air conditioning. And so many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have a tenth of that. And there's something about just getting outside of your context and getting uncomfortable that gives you an entirely new point of view. And I'm so grateful that we are a part of a family of churches that represent different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, and different challenges around the world. And I sat in Phnom Penh with Pastor Pond and Hope in Life Church. And if you don't know anything, Phnom Penh has millions of people. I know you are like millions. Holland has like 30,000, 40,000. Millions of people in the city of Phnom Penh, and they have like high rises. I mean, it is an incredibly growing city, incredible growing city. They have high rises all in the downtown. You'll see Porsches and Ferraris, and then you cross the river in the same city, and you are in the slums. And when I say the slums, I mean the slums. And, and, and it's here that Hope and Life Church exists in the slums. And Pastor Pana is a rock star and everybody knows him. He took me places where as an American gringo, you would not go by yourself. But because I was with Pana, I felt good. I felt safe. Everybody knew Pastor Pana because he has blessed so many people. And I, I mean, down back alleys and getting to sit with church people. And there was one moment on Saturday, he brought me to their kids' ministry. And we walked down these back shantytown streets into the slums right next to the river where people were cutting up the fish and the garbage is everywhere. And there's a guy who is a Buddhist and he said they, the church could use his below deck area because he likes that they were blessing the neighborhood. And we curved under and we knelt down and we went under this little house, the house is generous. And there was about 30, 40 kids between the ages of 3 to 14, half of which didn't have shoes. And they were singing and dancing and smiling and learning scripture and singing praises to Jesus. And at the end, they were so excited to get these little snacks that most of us would turn our noses up to. And I watched these little kids that have nothing compared to what we have, have so much joy because of the ministry of Hope and Life Church. And then Pana leaned over and he said, there's four of these groups happening around the slums right now. And that's kids ministry. And I thought, dear God, thank you so much that we get to play a small part in their lives and their hope in their life and bringing Jesus and the hope of the gospel into places like this. And so Central, on behalf of Hope and Life Church, if you weren't here last week and you didn't see that video where I was sweating my butt off, like Pastor Craig made a joke about it, but I got to preach at Hope and Life Church. And when I say Hope and Life Church, the church is about a fourth the size of this stage. It's about from there to there wide. And they loaded up with plastic chairs two, two aisles deep with a center aisle. And they ran out of space. Many of the people that come don't have shoes. And they don't have air conditioning. And it's in the Cambodian heat. Guys, when I tell you I sweat as a preacher, I ain't never sweat that much. I was literally dripping. I was kind of mad I wore like a half-white shirt because I was like, they're going to be able to see through this. It's going to be real awkward. But, but, but I got to preach in that service. And they were running out of space. And so we, as a central church family, as Water's Edge family, we're looking for a new property for them so they can reach even more of this Buddhist impoverished community from the name of Jesus. But there was something about just being there that 
just help me experience a new point of view. And then I hopped on a quick flight and I went to Bogor, Indonesia, where Pastor Sandy ministers in Pangrango Church. And if you've heard this or you've been around before, Bogor and Indonesia as a whole is the highest population of Muslims in the world. Bogor is 98% Muslim, very conservative Muslim. And Sandy and their little church called Pangrango, again, smaller than this stage, have filled up their service one time, two times, three times. They are out of space. And so I spent the, the week with his leadership team touring new properties, trying to figure out where God is going to open a door so they can reach even more people for Christ there in Bogor. But there's something so healthy about trying to understand the point of view. And, and while I was there, I got to go spend some time with Pastor Sandy and one of his main elders and think and pray about what the next step for Pangrango looks like. And while I was traveling, I met these medical doctors from Jakarta, these conservative Muslim medical doctors wearing the hijab and the whole garb. And we got to converse and talk a little bit about Islam and Christianity. And they were so nice and kind and open to reason. And I got to ask them questions about Islam. And they were asking me questions about Christianity. And in asking questions to each other, like something that's always bothered me, I thought, man, with how conservative and constricting Islam is, it seems like saying yes to Jesus and stepping into the freedom of Christianity would be a no-brainer. Like, why wouldn't you want it? And they echoed what Pastor Sandy said. Because I don't know if you know this, Pastor Sandy used to be a Muslim. His mom gave her life to Christ, and she prayed for 10 years that her son would find Jesus. And after 10 years of praying for her son, Sandy put his faith in Jesus. And then he became a pastor, and her mom kept praying, his mom kept praying for 22 years, and Sandy got to baptize his brother who gave his life to Christ after 22 years. Can I just stop and say, there is power in a praying parent. Some of you moms and dads out here are praying for your kids. Yeah, don't stop praying. It's been two weeks, two months, two years. This mom prayed for 22 years, and both of our sons came to Jesus, and one's a pastor now. Ooh! But I asked them, what was it like going from Islam, from Muslim beliefs to Christianity? What's the biggest hurdle? And they said the same thing the medical doctors said from Jakarta that were still Islamic. One of them even said, I would love to say yes to Jesus, but I can't leave my family. And I asked Sandy, I said, man, what's the biggest hurdle? And he said, family. Because in Islam, there's a belief that you raise your kids to believe in Allah and, and believe in Muhammad. And when you die, one of the ways you go to heaven is your kids pray for you. And in your kids' prayers, it opens up the pathway to heaven and eternity. So when a child in the Muslim faith leaves the faith to become agnostic, atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, or Christian, or anything other than Islam, they are literally abandoning their family for eternity and their belief. And most Islamic people that put their faith in Jesus are disowned by their family. So imagine your family pays your rent or pays your tuition or you, they pay your food. And you want to give your life to Christ. A, you're saying no to all their provision. But then B, you're actually insulting your family. I wonder... I wonder what it was like to get to the place of desperation where you're so desperate for a change that you're willing to step away from family to say yes to the love of Jesus. That's where Sandy got. That's where his brother got. That's where so many in Peyton Rango got. I wondered, like thinking about that point of view, I wondered how many of us in here today, 
Like we're raised in a Christian nation, one nation under God. Many of us are blessed to be raised in a Christian family. And so we didn't have to make the choice between Jesus and our family. But can you imagine if you were in their shoes? Would we still choose Jesus? And it gives a weight and a gravitas to the ministry that Sandy is doing in Pangrango because I sat on the floor in a small group and I have so many stories from this trip, guys. I have so many stories I can't wait to share with you guys in the weeks and months to come. But imagine you're sitting on the floor there in Bogor and, and I was sitting with them in a small group of about 16 people and he goes, she was a Muslim, she was a Muslim, he was a Muslim, he was a Hindu, she was a Muslim, he was a Muslim. And one by one, they had all professed Jesus as their Lord and Savior and saw God move and work in them. So can we just stop and praise God for what he's doing around the world through our church family? It is amazing. It is paradigm shaking. And I can't wait to share more stories with you guys. But may Apana and Sandy say hello. But there's something powerful. There's something powerful about taking the point of view of another person. Putting yourselves in their shoes. And so that's what we're going to do in Luke chapter 18. If you're there, say yeah. Nice. Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 35, it reads, As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. That, that's our scripture for today. That, 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 that's the entire narrative that we're going to cover. And in reading that, we would say, man, there's not much there, right? Jesus on his way to Jericho, cutting through the road, sees a beggar. The beggar needs to be healed. Jesus heals him. Everybody praises God. End of story, right? Doesn't seem like it would make a, a movie or, or even a good episode or barely even maybe like a pilot pitch in Hollywood. But I think if we, if we take a moment and we try and put ourselves in the shoes, if we try and learn the points of view in the story, one of my favorite ways to study scripture is to just try and ask, what are the different points of view represented here? It, it makes me think about my undergraduate degree. Um, I got my master's in theology, but undergrad, I actually went to school for film. Um, my aunt um, asked me about once a year, when are you going to quit ministry and move to Hollywood? She's not a Christian, um, but she thinks I could make it. And I take that as an extreme compliment, but I don't think I'd be that good at it. But I, if I wasn't in ministry, I would love to be like an actor or a director, an executive producer. I just love the world of movies and television. And as I read Luke chapter 18 under this banner of point of view, it makes me think about how Luke and the writers of the Gospels are incredible at setting the scene. Like, like in film school we learned, you, you start every scene with what's called an establishing shot. If you turn on your televisions this afternoon, put on your favorite movie or any show, you'll see the first thing you see is what's called an establishing shot. This is why sitcoms have the jingle at the beginning, right? Full house, it sets up the scene. It's in San Francisco, and it's a bunch of people and a family coming together. And you're like, oh, I get the context. You know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, before every scene, they show you the mansion. 
you know, and it's like, oh, you know, guy from Philadelphia in the hood, you know, being raised in Bel Air. It's telling you, like, anybody remember Family Matters? Remember the, it's a rare condition in this day and age. No, okay, yeah. To read any good news in a newspaper, okay, anyways. Um, but yeah, it shows us Chicago. There's always the establishing shot that lets you know where this is taking place. And the writer Luke does exactly this. He says in verse 18, as Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside. In other words, what Luke does for us before pushing in on the point of view of the characters, he zooms out and he gives us the establishing shot. In, in scripture, it's a really profound tool if you will zoom out and just go, okay, what's happening here? And, and, and he says, as he sets up the scene, he says, Jesus is, is walking down the road to Jericho. And before he gets to Jericho, there are suburbs and there are towns. And, and he's cutting through one of these towns. And, and on the road to Jericho through this town, there's many lefts and rights he can take. There's many routes to the destination. But in this scene, on this day, Jesus takes the right amount of lefts and the right amount of rights. And he just so happens to walk down the road next to the blind beggar. Another one of the Gospels actually tells us the blind beggar's name. His name is Bartimaeus. I like alliteration. Um, I was told by an old Baptist preacher, if it alliterates, it's anointed. Um, same thing if it rhymes. <laughs> That's why we do that so much. But this is an easy one to remember. His name is blind beggar Bartimaeus, or as I like to call him, blind beggar Bart. Everybody say Bart. So you got blind beggar Bart, and I just wonder, you know, as Bart woke up that morning, if it was one of those mornings where he was like, oh, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I pulling my mat out and making my way to the corner again? I wonder if he thought, man, should I go to this street or that street? Should I do the same spot or a new spot? But on that day, blind beggar Bart found himself at the right place at the right time. See, if we zoom out in this narrative, the first thing we see is there is a principle of placement. Because Bart could have chosen any other road or any other street corner, but on that day he found himself in the right place at the right time. Anybody ever been at the right place in the right time? Like anybody ever had one of those days? If you're married, you should have raised your hand. You should have been like, when I met you, honey, I put it on a tee for you. That was it. But right, you just had one of those days where like, you open the door for the person at Starbucks, you start up a conversation, you're talking about life, and all of a sudden you get a job offer, and you're like, whoa, I didn't expect that. Or you're just catching all the green lights, Matthew McConaughey style. You know what I'm talking about? Those of you that read his book, you get it? Nope. The rest of you, know. But like, you know what I'm talking about? Right place, right time. Anybody ever had one of those days, you know? You scratched off the scratch. I'm just kidding. I'm not endorsing gambling. But like, just we good days, right? Many of us, let me ask the antithesis, the opposite of that. Anybody ever been at the wrong place at the wrong time? More hands. Hmm. <laughs> Many of you, right? We know what it's like. Just have a bad day. Find yourself at the wrong. Anybody been in a place and you just had that feeling like, I don't know if I should be here, right? You know what I'm talking about? That's the Holy Spirit or common sense. Both work, right? In life, when you have that feeling, I don't know if I should be. I've had that happen to me so many times. It, it makes me think of, I'll give you one story. When I found myself at the wrong place at the wrong time. Years ago, I came on staff at a church in South Florida. It was my first month on staff. And the lead pastor and his wife were flying into town, uh, flying back into South Florida. And the executive pastor said, hey, does anybody want to pick them up at the airport? And my hand shot up. I was like, me. And, and, and here's why. 
um, often at that church, in this church, we'll bring in guest speakers. And, and young in ministry, anytime we would bring in a guest speaker, they would ask, does anybody want to host the guest speaker? And I would raise my hand and I was like, me, let me do it, let me do it. Because I had a mentor teach me a long time ago, if you want to progress in life, try and get around people that are a few steps ahead of you in the areas of life you want to improve in. You know what I mean? So if you want to become a great parent, find people that have great children and go spend time with them. You want to become a great spouse, find people that have a good marriage and go spend time with them. You want to be a great pastor or speaker or ministry leader, find people doing that and go spend time with them. Don't pester them, but just serve them and catch whatever wisdom they drop. And so early in life, anytime I had an opportunity, I mean, and these were some profound, like, world-renowned speakers. And, and, and I'd go, I'll, I'll pick them up. I, I'll take my car, spend my gas. I will go to the gas or the car wash and clean my car and vacuum it out. And then here's what I would do. I would call the church they were coming from. I'd ask for their assistant and I'd say, hey, what's their favorite Starbucks order? And I would have it ready on my dime when they got off the plane for them. How many of you would love to be picked up like that from the airport every day, Right? Some of you are like, dude, are you just a huge kiss up? Like what's, right? But there's this scripture. You know the only place the Bible gives us permission to be competitive, it actually commands us to be competitive, is when it comes to honor. The Bible says outdo one another in showing honor. You talk about change, a relationship, change a life, change a family dynamic. You wake up and you're like, how can I out-honor my brother and sister today? How can I out-honor my spouse? That is the one area we get to be competitive as Christ followers. And so when, when we're hosting this, I'll tell you, like, I'll just say stuff I didn't have time to in the first service. I have now gotten the privilege over the last decade and a half of speaking. I've been invited to speak all over around the world by the grace of God. And sometimes when I get picked up, people do that for me. What I do, they'll, they'll have like coffee waiting for me or water for me because you're dehydrated when you get off the plane. Their car is nice and clean. Then they bring me to the church and they have a green room and they've called and they find out what snacks I like in there. And, and, and let me tell you, there's no part of me that walks in and is like, that's right, they better have the green M&Ms. You know, like every time people honor, it humbles the mess out of me. I literally am going, I don't deserve any of this. And it makes me want to go above and beyond and bring a fire word for him because they've just humbled me with honor. That's what real honor does. So anyways, I, I, I go to pick him up and at that time I had an old TJ uh, 1996 Wrangler Jeep. And if you know Jeeps, that's not a good vehicle to pick people up in from the airport. It's not comfortable, small back seat. So they let me borrow the pastor's SUV and I go and get it clean and have the water and everything. And they didn't like coffee, so I just had water. And I show up 45 minutes early to the airport. Because in my family, early is on time, on time is late, and if you're late, you're kicked out of the family. Uh, and so I'm early, and, and to make a long story short, I pull up, and, and there's this long straightaway into the Fort Lauderdale airport, and then it banks left into the terminals. And when I pull up, I see cars parked on the shoulder, and I think, oh, this is where I'm supposed to park. And so I pull up, yeah, I'm naive, chill out. And so I pull up behind these cars, long line of cars, and I'm waiting. Ten minutes goes by, five minutes more, and cars are pulling out as they get that call. And then after about another 10 minutes, about 30 minutes till their flight lands, I see a Broward County Sheriff's Office, uh, a, an officer pull up in front of everybody. And he gets out of his car and he starts gesturing the cars forward. And I think, what a nice officer, organizing us, getting us in line, naive. He pulls out his citation clipboard and starts issuing guys parking tickets, right? Uh, and I'm in like the back of this line. There's like 30, 40 cars in front of me. He can't see us back here. And many of the guys in front of me are just peeling out. They're like, I ain't giving me a ticket. And so I'm in the back and I'm like, ah, oh, what should I do? He can't even see me, not going to give me a ticket. But I'm going to go ask him where I should park. 
And so I pull into this lane of traffic. There's cars kind of coming up behind me. I come up near to the officer. I roll my window down. I come to a really slow halt, and I say, excuse me, officer, where should I park if I'm waiting on somebody to land? Now, let me first say this. I love our servicemen and women. I love our officers, our first responders. Can we just give a hand for anybody and everybody that serves us? I love them. I love them. But what I know about our servicemen and women is they are servicemen and women. They are humans. And humans have bad days. And I think this guy was having a bad day. Because I said, where should I park? And he responded with, not even looking up from his clipboard, he said, back up. That startled me. I was like, ah. <laughs> and I look at my rearview mirror and there's cars coming up behind me. And I said, excuse me, officer, I'm sorry, I can't back up, but I, I can pull right up there next to your car. I'll pull over. I, I, I'm sorry, I can't back up. To which he then responded without looking up, back the blankety blank up. Some of you are like, officers in South Florida are different. They are. <laughs> They're a little bit more. Ugh. I didn't even know cops could talk like that. And it kind of shocked me. And I was like, ah. And I said, and literally there was a car right on my back bumper, like trying to get around me. It was causing a traffic jam. And I said, officer, I'm sorry. I can't back up. I'm going to part. I'm going to pull right. And when I gestured forward, I think he thought I was going to try and get away. So he proceeded to reach in and grab me. I don't know how he thought. He was going to stop an entire SUV by grabbing me. But when he reached in and grabbed me, it scared me. And I went, ah. But when I went, ah, my foot came off the brake. And when my foot came off the brake, the SUV lurched forward. And he went to pull his hand out. And his finger got caught in the seatbelt. And all I heard was crack. And he's off to the side of the SUV going, bleep, 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 blankety, blank, bleep, 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 bleep. You're going to jail for assaulting a police officer, bleep, bleep, blank, blank. And I'm going, ah. And so I pull over. Within five minutes, there are nine police officers, one ambulance, and a SWAT team member on site. I am being told that I am going to jail for assaulting a police officer, and they're impounding my pastor's car. <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. You ever been somewhere in life and you're like, how did I get here? Like, God, what is this? And I, I spent the next hour explaining to, they had license and registration, please. And I was like, um, here's my license. This isn't my car. And they were, that was fun. Because they're like, whose car is it? And I was like, it's my pastor's. And they were like, I thought you said you were the pastor. You're lying to us. And then I had to explain to an atheist cop that church, churches can have more than one pastor. It was a debacle. But it all started with me just putting myself in a position where I was like, Ooh, I, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Wrong place. Some of you are like, what happened? Well, I went to jail. No, I'm just kidding. Your pastor doesn't have a record. Um, they ended up just letting me off with a parking ticket. But funny thing was, after explaining everything, uh, they, they didn't believe me that I was going to pick up my pastor. And so they escorted me to my pastor and his wife with three cop cars. Granted, I'd only been on staff a month. And I pull up and I was like, funny story. <laughs> Would you mind telling them you know me, though? Please. And get on with our day. <laughs> Officer was fine. We're all good. But the point of all that is there's a principle of placement. If you put yourself in the wrong place long enough, it will eventually be the wrong time. You got that one friend, likes to drink a little too much. When they drink too much, they get a little combative. And it's cause for some funny stories. But one time, two times, five times, six times, all of a sudden they're in a bar fight and you end up in handcuffs. Because you keep putting yourself in the wrong place. There's the wrong mental space. 
that we can put ourselves in over and over and over again. And it won't be long before wrong place leads to wrong time. But again, the antithesis of that is true too. Wrong place, wrong time. That means sometimes there's a right place and a right time. In other words, if you can identify this is a good place, this is the right place, and you keep showing up and keep showing up, and even though it's not happening, you keep, some of you want to lose weight, some of us want to get healthy, go to the gym. You may walk in the gym the first time and be like, I don't feel like this, and walk right back out. Go back to the right place. The next day, show up. Maybe you'll do a curl. It's okay. The next day, show back up. You keep showing up to the right place. Eventually, you'll do the right things, and eventually, it'll be the right time. Some of you are here today because you are so desperate for change in your life that you are just checking out church. Can I just tell you, if you are in church today, you're in the right place? Turn to the person next to you and tell them you're in the right place. Tell them you're in the right place. You need life change. You need something to change in your life. You need God to work. Keep showing up to the right place. And for long, it'll be the right time. And I just think about Bart, blind beggar Bart, day after day after day, just seeking people's pity. And all of a sudden, the day came where he found himself in the right place at the right time. And then the, the director, Luke, takes us from the wide shot, the zoom out, and he zooms in. And he gives us the point of view of blind beggar Bart. And the narrative continues and it says that Bart has a moment that changed everything for him. And for the next few moments, I, I, I want us to try and catch the point of view of Bart. I want us to try and put ourselves in his shoes. I want us to use our imaginations and try and become a part of the scene. And so to do that, I, I just want to ask you to imagine that you are Bart. Well, it says Bart was blind, so can I have everybody close your eyes? Let's close our eyes together. Use our imaginations. Some of you aren't doing it, so I'm going to help you out. If you're laughing, you weren't following instructions. <laughs> With our eyes closed, I just want you to imagine what it would be like to spend your entire life staring into darkness, into the void. And in that culture, if you suffered an ailment like blindness, the culture believed that it was because of some sin in your life or your family's life. And so not only are you blind and destitute, but but you're excluded from society. You can't get a job. You can't work. No one will hire you. It's hard to find friends. And so you're left with no option but to beg for people's pity. And so that morning you wake up and you, you make your way to, to the curbside, to the roadside. And you're thinking, man, I just hope I got a good spot. I hope I found the right place today. Maybe I'll get lucky and a few people will come by. And all of a sudden, the distance, you hear the murmur of a crowd. And you think, man, it'd be awesome if they came my way. But nothing good ever happens to me, so don't get your hopes up, Bart. And the murmur grows, and that distant crowd turns into a low rumble. And you think, oh, man, they're getting kind of close. That'd be cool, but... But man, don't get your hopes up, Bart. Nothing good ever happens to you. And then in the rumble, you start to hear the whispers of a name you've heard before. You start to hear Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus. And you know that name. You've heard that name. You think, man, man, if that guy Jesus, I've heard that he's teaching people amazing things. He's even 
done some miracles apparently men if, if he's with this crowd th this could be the biggest crowd ever this could be a, a huge payday for me man what if they came my way and then that murmur that turned into a rumble starts to turn into a bit of a roar and you start to get excited and you're thinking oh i think they're coming down my street i can't think they're coming down my path and sure enough the roar grows and grows and you realize the people are all around you and and jesus may be right there and you think man i got to get him to stop what can i say to get him to stop and then you come up with it you think of it and you say hey Hey, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people around you say, shut up, Bart. This isn't your moment. And you think, no, 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 I got to get him to stop. And you say, hey, son of David, don't pass me by. And the crowd is at an all-time high. And you think, man, I just, I got to get him to stop. Man, and with one more try, with everything in you, you cry out, son of David, don't pass me by. And it says Jesus stopped. And you hear a voice. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? And in that moment, you realize you have the attention of the king. You can open your eyes. See, there's something powerful. You can put yourselves in another person's shoes. Someone that's so desperate for things to change. They don't care what people think. They don't care what people say. But you see Bartimaeus there, he chose his words wisely. Because the narrative tells us that he was called Jesus of Nazareth. So why did Bart not say, hey, Jesus, don't pass me by. But rather he chose the words, son of David. See, though he was blind, he obviously paid attention back when the Torah was read. Because the Old Testament tells us that Bart was not just making a theological statement, he was making a political statement. And those statements got Jesus' attention. See, the prophecies in the Old Testament said the Messiah, the Savior, would come out of the lineage of David. And so by saying, Son of David, Bart was saying, Messiah. Savior. He was proclaiming that Jesus was the one that was prophesied about. But not only was he making a theological statement, by saying son of David, he was saying you are of royal lineage. In other words, king, Messiah and king, don't pass me by. I wonder how many of us today have become so desperate for something to change in our lives that we not only cry out to Jesus as the Savior and the forgiver that died on the cross, but we cry out to Jesus as our King. There's something different when you understand Jesus is the King of the universe. And He's not just any King, He's a good King. And I love that Bartimaeus was desperate enough Say, it doesn't matter what people think or say, I just got to get Jesus' attention. And I wonder how many of us in here today would say you're desperate enough for something to change in your life. That today would be your day that you cry out to the son of David, to the Savior, to the King. But then it gets real interesting. Because you see, it says, you know, point of view, Bartimaeus, son of David, don't pass me by. And then it says Jesus stops. And Jesus turns to Bart and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I just got to say it. If you are the crowd, 
zoom out a little bit. And now we're putting ourselves in the position of the crowd. And there's Jesus and there's Bartimaeus and he stopped. And if you're in the crowd and you know blind beggar Bart and Jesus stops, what are you thinking? <sighs> we're all going to have to give Bartimaeus money. Right? Jesus stopped. We all got to stop. Bartimaeus is about to get the payday of his life. Right? And then Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? If you're in the crowd, what are you thinking? That's a dumb question. Duh, the beggar wants money. Right? That's what beggars want. Jesus, just throw down some coins. We all will throw down coins because we feel guilty and you did it. And Bart will have the biggest payday of his life and we can all keep moving. But Jesus doesn't care about what people think you want. Jesus cares about what he knows you need. And it's as if Jesus stops and says, all right, Bart, you got my attention. Your move. It's your move. What do you want me to do for you? I think about the point of view of Bart when that question was lofted towards him. I tell you guys all the time, I grew up playing sports. I can't get away from sports illustrations. I apologize. But they're really practical in life. I grew up playing baseball, and I'll never forget, I was 11 years old in Orange Beach, Alabama, and I was a leadoff hitter, short, played shortstop, and, and, and my job as the leadoff hitter is just to get on base. If you know baseball, if you're leadoff, you just got to get on base, high on base percentage. And so you, you're never really putting a lot of power into the ball as much as you're just trying to put it in play. Just put it in play and get on base. I'll never forget, 11 years old, leadoff hitter, and, and I just had this feeling, instead of just trying for a single or a double, Instead of just trying to put it in play just one time, I'm going to cock my hips, I'm going to turn in, I'm going to lean in, and whatever that pitcher throws, I'm swinging for the fences. And sure enough, this pitcher threw me an inside fastball, and I turned on that sucker. For the first time in my life, I hit a home run. You should have saw my third base coach. I'd never seen a bigger look of shock. He looked out, and he looked back at me, and he goes, where'd that come from? And I was like, thanks for the vote of confidence. But there's something about in life when you say, man, I'm not going to settle for what's expected of me. I'm not going to settle for what people think I should want and think I should say. But I'm going to swing for the fences. Bartimaeus could have said, can I have some money? And he would have had the biggest payday of his life. But instead, he recognized that he had the attention of the Messiah King. And Jesus lofted that metaphorical inside fastball. He said, what do you want me to do for you? And I love that Bartimaeus swung for the fences. And he said, I want to see. And can you imagine if you're in the crowd's point of view, I guarantee you a hush came over that crowd. What did he ask? What did he just ask? What did he ask for? Did he ask for him to not be blind? Did he ask for a miracle? What's Jesus going to do? I wonder how many of us today, Jesus, if you will cry out to him as the king, if you will cry out to him as the Messiah, if you in your heart of hearts will acknowledge who he is and what he's done for you, you have his attention. And just like Bartimaeus, I think for many of us today, he is looking at you down the barrel of antiquity and he is saying, what do you want me to do for you today? 
And I wonder how many of us would stop praying prayers that are expected of us. I heard it said, if God answered all of your prayers, would it change your world or the world? What kind of prayers are you and I praying? Are we, doing, are we settling for a single or a double? Or rather, when we have the attention of the king, are we crying out and swinging for the fences and making a bold move? And I just love that Bart had the courage to say, oh, will you change my life? Will you do something miraculous? And I just imagine if you're Jesus, and he's just got a smile on his face. That a boy, Bart. That a boy. And he says, because of your faith, because you believed that I could do the impossible, because you know who I really am, open their minds. And imagine the point of view of Bart. Maybe your entire life it had been utter darkness. And for the first time, you open your eyes. And it's bright and it's blurry. But as things start to come into focus, the first thing you see is the face of Jesus. And I love it. It says he got up and he followed him. Duh! If I can't see and you come into my life and I can see, guess what? I'm sticking with this dude. Wherever he goes, I'm going. And I love the, the result of Jesus working in Bart's life is that Bart followed Jesus. Many of us today, we need to cry out for the miraculous in our relationships and our finances. Or maybe just we need to cry out to the son of David for the first time. And Jesus, in that story, like he will today to us, looks at each and every one of us and says, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder who here has the courage to make a bold move. To not care about what people think or say, but say, this is the step I need to take. I need to follow Jesus. And then it said, and all the onlookers praised and glorified God. Because when we make bold moves for Jesus, people can't help but take notice. As the band comes back up, I'm not sure where they're at, but we're going to sing one more song. And as we sing that, I just wanted to ask you the same question Jesus asked Bartimaeus. The question I think Jesus is asking many of us today. What do you want him to do? And for some of us, as we sing this last song, as per usual at Central, the altars are going to be open. And if you need to cry out to the son of David, if you need to give your life to Christ, I would encourage you, come up here. You can talk to me. You can talk to one of our pastors. We can lead you in that prayer. In the prayer room on the way out, we have a care team that would love to pray for you. Maybe you and your spouse, maybe someone in your family, man, you just need to cry out to God for healing in an area or favor in an area. Man, I would encourage you right there in your seat during this last song or maybe come up front and just kneel down and cry out. And like Bartimaeus, don't worry about what people say or think. Some of us need to make the bold move of signing up for baptism. Next week we are going to be celebrating life change. It's going to be a good barbecue style. We're going to have food. You know people are going to show up. We got food. It's free. We're going to have free food, but we're going to celebrate people going from death to life, saying yes to Jesus. Maybe some of you haven't taken that step of baptism. That's your bold move today.
But I'll say to you the same thing Jesus metaphorically said to Bart. It's your move. What do you want me to do? Church family, will you stand with me as we pray and worship? Jesus, thank you that when we cry out to you for who you really are, you always stop. The king of the universe gives us his attention, God, that is beyond my comprehension, God, but we are so grateful for it. And God, right now, I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice that as we were doing that illustration, as we were sitting in the point of view of Bartimaeus, God, those of us that can relate to him, or even like those Islamic brothers and sisters that went from Islam to Christianity, that God, that many of us have gotten desperate enough that we're ready for a change. And God, I pray that today would be the day that we make a bold move for you. And Jesus, we thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. If you did it before, you can do it again. Jesus, if you worked miracles before, you can do them now. And so we are praying in faith for healing, for miracles, for life change, for steps of growth in faith in Jesus' name. And we thank you that you can do it again and again and again. In Jesus' name, we pray and worship. Amen.